Well, I think, and Joel, you said it well, and before getting into the main part of the sermon this morning, in which we're going to wrap up this series on love and how love costs everything, I just want to take a few minutes to reflect a little bit on what we just heard from Laura and uh, some of this idea of a heart of generosity. And in doing so, I, I recognize that this sort of breaks the rules of Sermon Giving 101, where you start with an application and then you follow it up with some teaching. That, that just breaks all of the rules, but I didn't really like my sermon classes anyway at school, so uh, yeah. You know, Joel and I talked over the phone this past week about this idea of generosity and Laura's story in particular. And the piece of her story that really stood out to me was this idea of the, the holistic nature of generosity, that it's more than just financial giving, that it's really an entire way of life in which we begin to pour it out. And we're going to talk a lot about that piece of it this morning. But those are challenging thoughts to me as well. And Kevin shot me an email too, as we were discussing some of this. And the email he sent me had some of the writings of Second Corinthians 8 in which Paul was using the Church of Macedonia as an example of holistic or full giving of the kind of spirit that is required to, to, to give fully in this way. So I'll read that for you, comment, and then we'll transition into the bulk of the sermon. Second Corinthians 8 says this, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you Corinthians to know about the grace that God has given these Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Now, I'm not commanding you, Corinthians, but I do want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. And remember this, for though you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and though he was rich, remember that for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. So in reflecting on that passage a bit, obviously it starts a little with this idea of financial generosity in particular and how the Macedonians were wanting to participate in that. But there's something further and more deeply embedded in this passage, and it speaks to the earnestness of the Macedonians in their giving. They had next to nothing, the text says. It says extreme poverty, which in the Greek language literally means rock bottom destitution. Yet they begged to be part of something, to give something, even though they had nothing. It's almost like they forgot. They were so moved by what they could give towards it. Like, we want to give. And then, oh, wait, we don't actually have anything, but we want to give. And they were moved by that piece of it. And, and Paul ties in that kind of heart of generosity to respond to the needs of this world. He ties it into even what Jesus did. And he takes it beyond financial generosity. And he talks about the one who, though he was rich in all things, he gave it all up and became poor so that others could become rich. So I reflected a bit on this this past week and my own attitude towards generosity. That was fun. I realized that, too, to the extent that I give of myself, whether it be financially or in time or in energy or in resources, that if I'm honest with myself so often, it's coming from a place of obligation 
or coming from a sense of perhaps checking it off the list. The Bible says that we should do this, and so I do it. But my concern with that, as I reflected on my own journey in this, is that to simply live under the obligations of the commands of Scripture is to risk a Pharisaic way of life in which I do the commands of Scripture, but maybe there's nothing inside that would be like the Macedonians that just respond and don't even realize they can't. They just want to respond. The description of the Pharisees that doing all of the things on the outside that looks great. You're like whitewashed tombs, Jesus says. You look great on the outside, and yet inside you're filled with the bones of dead men. And what I realized this week and thank you very much, Laura, for your story (laughs) in the conviction of it, is that uh, my call, in fact, I believe our call as people of faith, is to become like Jesus, actually. That the way we see and experience and react to the world is the way that Jesus did, who, though he was rich in all things, let it all go, and he became poor so that others could become rich. And it's a holistic way of life described in the Macedonian church. And I guess it's not surprising then that Laura, in following her own promptings and in walking out the own journey of her faith and partnering with God by the Spirit in that, begins to ask questions of generosity beyond just tithing 10% off the net or the gross or whatever the figure is supposed to be. That, that it's starting to bleed into her whole life of time and energy and Resources. It seems like the kind of thing Jesus might call us to if we say yes to something that might cost. And here's the thing. It is costly, which has been, as I said, and we'll start transitioning now into the main part of the sermon. Love is always costly in all of its forms and all of its expressions, whether it be generosity or hospitality or sacrifice or risk, it's always costly. I've sat with you these last four weeks, and usually up there with some of my children, and listening to the stories. And again and again, as people have come up here, I have been moved by the costliness of love in its many expressions. I remember Pastor Stephen Corey talking about the dangers of love in this phrase that echoed through my mind and heart as I left that morning, that under the threat of death, his response was, take me, not my father. Take me not my father. And then the following week, Ruth Kennard stood up here and she talked about the risk of love and giving up of her own comfort as she sat in Panera with her ritualistic cup of coffee. And these young women came in and she stepped out of her comfort zone and began interacting with women so very different than her. I hated that story. (laughs) I mean, there's something about Stephen's story, right? It's overseas, very moving, very powerful, but it's overseas, so I can sort of ignore it, right? Well, I go to Panera. Well, I don't anymore, but I... (laughs) The scene was familiar. And then Sandy Gilbert steps up here last week, and she starts talking about all of her tablecloths in China and giving the best of her resources and hospitality for people, giving up her her holidays, expanding it out, for people. I hated that story. My 10-year-old daughter walked out. She said, Dad, can we do that for Thanksgiving this year? No! <laughs> and now Laura stands up here and talks about all this stuff, about a holistic way of life, a generosity. It's like, let me write the check, give a little bit of time, and I'm good, right? 
it's going to cost me. And I know, you know, if we did this week after week, I know. I know that more people could come up and share these stools and start sharing the stories of what it is that love has prompted and what it is that love might cost in that. And so my question then for this sermon, as we wrap it all up, is recognizing the cost of all of this. My question is simply this. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to say yes to the promptings of the Spirit as he begins to move in us, to change us, and to teach us to love? Is it worth it? Is what that might cost worth it? Now, several weeks ago, Kevin um, asked me to share a little bit of my own story. Sort of an answer to this question now, is it worth it? And talk a little bit about my own journey with this and some of what I've learned in the course of life to put it into the stories of Ruth and Sandy and Stephen and Laura and everybody's story here to address this question, is love worth it? Is it worth that cost? Some of the story I've shared before, but uh, for me, parts of the story are the best way that I can find really to answer this question. Is it worth it? I'm a little nervous about this. I figure that if I shed a few tears up here, Kevin owes me big. Um, I think it's one pancake per tear actually is the going rate. So that what I'd like to do is pray as we begin to share a bit of my story. And the most important piece of this is simply to just answer the question for all of us, is love worth the cost? Okay, so let's pray as we begin. God, I ask for your spirit that you would move among us both individually and corporately, all of us as words are spoken and things revealed in dimensions of your kingdom described in the best way possible. I ask that by your spirit you would move in us so that we could indeed be prompted to continue as a people to say yes to the costliness of love. For it is that which remains in the end. I ask these things in your son's name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, I guess in a nutshell, my story that I would share involves the fast track of ministry success in my life. In the year 2000, I had graduated with my Master's of Divinity from Bethel Seminary. And at that time, I was also a pastor in a very large church in the metro Area. I was doing pastoral work in community life, uh, adult ministry leadership, and, and guiding you know, tens, dozens of leaders in the way to lead in the church, and sometimes giving the sermon to thousands of people on the weekend. And I was just 30 years old at the time and feeling like, wow, you know, I've really got this whole world by its tail. I mean, you look at me, look what I'm doing. I, you know, give me 10 years and might be the most famous Christian. In America, I mean, Joel Austin, yeah, and I know he's got the Astrodome and TV networks and stuff, but I'll have YouTube, right? I mean, <laughs> and so that continued for a while, and the ascent up this ladder uh, continued into 2002 and three, and I transitioned into academia and began teaching full-time at a local university. A young, promising scholar, my courses were well-received, and the trajectory and the ladder of success continued. And some people around me that were in academia said, Peter, you really need to go get your Ph.D. now so you can continue making an impact on the world. And so I did, and I enrolled at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland and prepared to start the Ph.D. program in the fall of 2004. 
But, you know, as we prepared in the spring of 2004 to move to Scotland that fall, I had one of those moments, as I think I was driving maybe at the time, and I had one of those moments that probably we all have from time to time, a little bit of critical self-reflection, often prompted by the Spirit <laughs> to maybe ask a few of the more difficult questions. And I remember as I was interacting with God in these places, I had this sort of horrible thought when something like this, you know, Peter, if you're honest with yourself, all this pastoral and all this teaching stuff, so much of it really seems like it's about you. Maybe not as much about God's kingdom. You know, you're out busy all the time. You don't see your young family very much. You sort of, if you're honest, sort of enjoy the applause of the spotlight and ministry success. Those are fun thoughts, aren't they? That's great. In response to that, I remember doing something that really no intelligent, self-respecting Christian should ever do in those moments. I prayed about it. I prayed that God would change my heart in that. It didn't seem quite right, but, you know, it's kind of a mildly serious prayer. It seems like God takes our prayers, obviously, you know, way more seriously than we do. It's not a great idea to say those kinds of words, to pray if you aren't ready to be twisted apart a bit, to be wrung out a bit, to have it cost you something. So I think sometimes that the amount of distortion that we carry related to life in this world is often directly related to the difficulty of the transformative work that needs to be done. And I had no idea. It's about two weeks later after praying that prayer that my son Caleb, who was four years old at the time, was sitting in the living room of our townhome in Plymouth. And he had the photo album opened, and uh, there are some pictures in the album of our family cabin in Michigan that we go to each summer. And he was looking at the photos, and my wife, Hallie, looked down at him and said, Oh, Caleb, you really like the cabin, don't you? And Caleb, again, who's four, looks up and he says these words. He says, Yeah. Can we go there after Daddy passes away? Like, oh, you know, exactly that, right? It's like all the air sucked out of the room. We're like in a vacuum. I mean, I can hardly breathe, you know, in this moment. And so I did what any mature father would do in those moments. I picked him up. I put him in the chair. I shined a light on him, you know, the light next to him to sort of, you know, hopefully disorient him with the heat and the bright light so I could interrogate him about where this information might have come from. <laughs> Thank goodness Hallie was there. She's like, dude, just ease off a little. And so I did, and I remember thinking, man, I'm going to drive really carefully between now and if I can just get to the cabin, it's all going to be fine. Because if I was to die, that would short circuit the climb up the ladder a little bit, right? So I made it to the cabin that year, and sure enough, made it beyond that. And we got to the fall of 2004 and got on the plane and made it to Scotland. And it took us about a month or so to acclimate to a new culture, a new way of life. Everything was a little spinny. It was uh, difficult. I remember getting into London and we had our 13 bags, like only Americans do, right? And we had our 13 bags and we're in King's Cross Station. And I'm sitting on a pile of luggage while Hallie is taking the two children to the bathroom, all jet lagged. And this little British girl comes walking by and she goes, is that your luggage? It's like, well, yeah, she goes, quite a lot to carry. <laughs> I thought, shouldn't you be looking for a platform nine and three quarters or something right now? I mean, so we made it and, uh, and got there and got acclimated eventually. And I got into life in the university and it took, like I said, about a month, got into October and kind of felt like, okay, 
the rhythm is, it, it, it's starting, it's ready, and I can really do this PhD thing. The ascent can continue. And it was about mid-October that I remember one night sitting on my computer on my laptop in our flat, and as I had my fingers on the home row of the computer, uh, my left index finger started in a really, really weird fashion, just jerking back and forth, left to right. And it kept doing it. And it kept doing it and doing it and persisted. I thought, that's weird. I mean, I've had twitches before, sort of around my eyes and stuff, but nothing like this. I'm assuming it'll go away. And it didn't go away. And I remember walking through the city with my mittens on and my, I could feel my finger just knocking against the other fingers. And I thought, oh, gosh, this is just strange. And not only did it not go away, it started getting worse. And pretty soon, it was not just my finger, it was all the various muscles of my body were twitching from head to toe, top to bottom. Started getting fairly worried about that, obviously, and made it through November and December. And we were going home for the holidays that year. And I got off the plane uh, with my family, and my mom and my dad were there to greet us. And one of the first things that I said, of course, in just going to my dad, I said, you know, Dad, I think I'm sick. I don't know what's going on. I need to see some doctors and, and described what was happening. So over the next couple of weeks, Hallie and I and, and, uh, and myself sometimes just on my own, whatever we had time for uh, in the short time of being home, um, started seeing doctors, went to internists and went to people to give MRIs and CAT scans. And they couldn't figure it out and they just kept referring me to different places until finally I went down to a clinic in Burnsville to see a neurologist who over the course of about two weeks, and by this time we're already now going to have to extend our stay here in the States, he runs his own series of tests over those two weeks. And finally, at the end of one test in particular, and Hallie and I were sitting in the room, just the two of us, where he had taken a machine to measure the electrical activity of my muscles and nerves and all that. In the room, you can kind of feel that, right? You know, the room starts getting really quiet, and you know something is up. And when he was done with his test, he looked down. And I'll never forget those moments in that time. He said, I'm going to need to send you to the University of Minnesota to confirm what I'm seeing here. What are you seeing here? He said, well, I'm seeing ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, which if you know anything about the disease, it is invariably fatal, usually within two to four years, sometimes sooner. The reason why your muscles twitch is because your nerves and muscles are no longer in communication, and so your muscles are dying off, and twitching is a primary symptom of that. And when he said those words, and I, I can remember, and, and, and I'm certain there are those among us here this morning that know exactly of what I speak, whether it is you or whether it is people that you have loved, when words like that are breathed over you, whether it's cancer or ALS or whatever it happens to be, the world just goes dark. And the blackness is there sort of everywhere in which you turn. And there's no real escape from it. And I remember those days that followed, that the only escape sometimes you might get a little bit is through, through fitful moments of sleep. And then that moment just right between when, you, when you're still asleep and when you wake up, you know, and, and all of life still feels like it once was. And then you wake up and the fullness of it there is again. And you turn around and, and it's just dark everywhere you turn. And I remember fighting and crying and fighting and denying and crying and fighting and denying and, and walking through the next six or seven days, trying to get my head around all of this and really saying it couldn't be right. I was on such a journey. I was going to save the world. <laughs> and I remember one night in the, in the fighting and the tears as I lay in bed, 
that there came an invitation. Clear as a bell in my spirit, I can still remember exactly how it felt. And it was as if God had come to say, you know what, Peter? You need to embrace this journey. You need to say yes to it. You said, Peter, you wanted life in my kingdom. You said this is what you wanted. This is what it's going to cost. You need to take of my cup. I didn't want to take it, but you claimed to follow me. I took the cup. You need to say yes. Now, I wish in those moments that I could talk about some sort of big, strong spiritual response that I had, right? You know, like Peter in the New Testament, I'll take your cup, Lord, absolutely, bring it on. (laughs) I was much different than that. It was bumbling and staggering, sort of in the spirit of the centurion, you know, who says, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. (laughs) I remember I finally spluttered out. Yes. Okay. I'll take it. You know, it's hard to describe what happened in those moments, but it it, it felt, I guess, like something broke inside. Some sort of weird transcending peace kind of entered into the equation, if only in just a a whiff or a whisper of it, but it was real nonetheless. And, And what I found and where that peace came from is that when all is stripped away, And the valleys of the shadow that are so very real and through which we all have to walk. That when all is stripped away, not all is lost. For there are a few things that remain in the end. And it's those three things that brought a sense of weird, indescribable peace. Though fear and everything else persisted, it was there. These three things, they may sound familiar to you. Faith was there. Faith that what is unseen is real. And hope is there. Some sort of weird certainty that what we believe is real and that even though I die, yet I will live. And so though I grieve, I don't grieve as one without that. But there's something else there in the end. One more thing, one final thing was there. It's the greatest of the three. It was love. And that love was there simply because my father was there. Just as he promised. To walk through the valleys of the shadow. To say, I am here with you. He stands with me, us, to walk through. His rod and his staff are there. The evil is real, but it is not the end. And here's the thing about it. He doesn't stand there Because he has to. (laughs) Because he knows he's supposed to. Because he says, well, I wrote the Bible after all, right? And so, you know, I suppose I better be here because I said that I would. But tick-tock, let's get through the business of this, right? Because I've got places to be. He's there for one reason. God is love. And that's there in the end. And he says, I will take your hand and we can walk through this veil together. And then you will fully see. He said, Peter, remember, I'm here because I poured it all out one time. I said yes 
to this. And you know, it's funny, the next few days I began to get little tastes in the midst of the fear and the turmoil and the agony and the pain. It doesn't all go away, but I got little tastes of what love actually tastes like in my spirit. Things that I had never really had before. And you know, it's funny, I don't remember thinking once about giving another sermon. I don't remember thinking once about teaching another class in that, as important as those things might be. I did care about reading a book with my daughter. I did care deeply about sharing the touch of my wife. I wanted to laugh and play with my son. I experienced deep grief for what I had missed on this journey. I experienced grief for what I would miss on the journey. The days that used to be so blurry, the conversations half heard, the interactions kind of that just went by in a given day, the needs around me ignored, suddenly those things seemed to matter. Suddenly those things seem to have a whiff about them that maybe these things will remain in the end. Maybe this is part of what God talks about when he says that love will remain. It will never fail. And in order to find this, it had cost deeply. For me, because of the depth of the distortion, it had cost everything. But it was worth it. It's worth every bit. You know, just to wrap up this piece of the story, there were about 10 days between when I was first diagnosed and when I went down to the U of M. And I remember the night before going down to the University of Minnesota and being with some dear friends of ours and my wife, and we entered into a time of prayer. And I don't know, maybe I was foolish in this, but I remember thinking, you know, the, 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 the fragility of this new life of love that seemed to have just maybe been birthed in my spirit in, in a weird sort of way. It was so fragile. It was like little seedlings of new life. And I was so afraid that if the diagnosis was removed from me on that next day, that the work that God had begun to do would suddenly just disintegrate again and I'd go right back. And yet, of course, I didn't want the diagnosis either. And so we prayed for a middle way. We asked God, is there a way in this where both and can happen? So I went down the next day, and the specialist down there, who's a specialist in Lou Gehrig's disease, ran me through a series of tests, and all the same ones. And when he was done, he looked up and he said, you know, Peter, I don't think you have ALS. I get this about every other month where somebody will come down having been diagnosed with ALS, but, it, uh, but, but what they end up having is a mimic syndrome that looks a lot like ALS, and it does all of the things that ALS does in terms of twitching and weakness and, and fatigue and all of that, but it's not degenerative and it won't kill you. It's a blank nuisance, he said. <laughs> but then he said these words, but I can't know this for sure for about nine months. I'm going to need to see you again then. There's the middle way. Pretty sure it's not, but it still might be. God's pretty interesting, funny, amazing sometimes with that. I still have all the same symptoms today. They are the nuisance that the doctor said they would be. (laughs) But there's a sweetness about them, too, in a weird sort of way. They are an ongoing reminder of the illusions of this world and the fading vanity of success and power as defined by our culture, how all of that will one day be swamped by the eternality of love. I enjoy being with you in this way. I I really do, and I really enjoy teaching 
in the classroom and being a part of all of this. It, it, it's something that I just, I, I feel like such a privilege on so many levels. But what, I, but what I recognize now is that if I never uttered another word in the classroom, that would be fine. Because it's love that remains in the end. It's what matters. And yet the journey of all of this is far from done. I recognize this even in my own life. All of this stuff is very true that I said about Ruth and Sandy and Laura and Stephen and these people and the journey that they're on in love. All the stuff that I said about me and my response of, oh, God, oh, I don't, oh, I don't know. I know it's going to cost to say yes to that. You know, love's a funny thing. Jesus, though he was rich in all things, he gave all of it up. And he poured himself out completely until there was nothing left. And so I think there's a piece of me that says, yes, I learned about, the, about love in those deep places in the valleys of the shadow. And I believe that it is true. And I believe that it is real. And that it will remain in the end. And yet my journey still is one of bumbling and staggering my way into it in its many expressions, whether it be hospitality or generosity or sacrifice or risk. But what if I continued to say yes to it? What if we did foolish things like asking God to continue to change us on the journey until it's all poured out? I don't know about you, but uh, and especially just even being at school now and seeing these young people, I'm becoming more and more overwhelmed with what seems to be the deepening and persistent darkness in this world. And frankly, I don't know how to answer that. I don't even know so often how to fight against that. PhDs don't teach you that. I wonder if it starts with love. And I wonder what would happen if people consistently said yes on this journey and said, I will pour it all out. Help me in my unbelief to do just that. I think about the people that I know in my life that have done this or are doing this. And I can even speak about my wife in this. She gave me permission for this story. She was talking with our son, Caleb, who's now just ready to turn 13. And she said to him recently, you know, Caleb, when I'm done with all of this, this journey, I want to be the kind of person who, if they picked me up and wrung me out like a rag, there wouldn't be a drop left to give. And I watch her as she does her life. And I, and I see the darkness recede um, when she engages in that process of love. There's something tangible and very life-giving and light-revealing as she says yes to those things, to pour it out and to wring it out until the end. So other people in my life that have since passed, they're part of the great cloud of witnesses now that cheer us on to do the same kind of pouring it out race. And they were grandparents for me growing up, not my actual grandparents. Their names were Spencer and Lois, and they, they, they served as grandparents to me. And I'll never forget the last couple of years of their life. I remember Spencer, who at the age of about 92, his body ravaged with leukemia. He still staggered to his office in the building in which I worked for the sole purpose of being available to love and to talk and to serve those around him. I still can remember listening to the labor of him getting up the stairs at the end. The raggedness of his breathing as he walked past. Not much left now. Not many drops in there. And yet when he would look up, there was a twinkle in his eye. And he couldn't wait to do it again today. 
And we spent some time with him in the last days of his life then, and he couldn't even get up out of the chair at that point, and yet he was still speaking deep things into my wife and me. In those moments, he poured it out, not a drop left, and the love of God in him shined in the darkness. And I remember his wife, Lois, who spent the last decades of her life fractured by osteoporosis, hunched over, wrinkled beyond recognition, and yet she still sang and gave and cooked and fussed over everyone who would come in her path. And there was a twinkle in her eye, though broken in body. She couldn't wait to love the others around her. I remember spending one of the last days of her life as she, now unconscious, lay in a hospital bed, surrounded by a mess of tubes and machines and just, just nothing to look at. And yet, as the longer I stood by her side, the tubes and the machines began to fade away. And what I saw in this body was somehow, though, though broken beyond recognition, there was a beauty and a wonder about her, where you could feel her spirit almost, though trapped in this body, enraptured by love, couldn't wait to be released and burst forth. She had poured it all out. She had become poor, so others could become rich. It's why God gave. It's why he sent. It's why he came. I wonder what it would be like if I or dozens or perhaps hundreds of people in the persistent and deepening darkness of this world just simply said, yes, I'll pour it out. But I guess here's the thing, and we'll wrap up with this. To, to do that needs to be said to make no mistake. To say yes means to love, uh, yes, but to risk all that is held dear. It may just cost you everything. Two masters cannot be served in all of this. The way of love is likely to be narrow, and it's likely to be rife with pain. But life and all it holds passes and fades. And in the end, there's one great thing that remains. It's love. Is it worth it to say yes? I think yes. There's a song Hallie reminded me of it this past week that Andrew Peterson wrote. It's titled, Love is a Good Thing. And cracked me up. I just, I love the way he talks about this. I'm going to, as we close, I'll read through the lyrics of these words. And it's what happens in the pursuit of love and all its expressions, how it totally wipes this out. Peterson writes this. It knocked me down. It dragged me out. It left me there for dead. It took all the freedom I wanted and it gave me something else instead. It blew my mind. It bled me dry. It hit me like a long goodbye. Nobody knows now better than I that it's a good thing. Yeah, love is a good thing. It'll fall like rain in your parade. Laugh at the plans that you try to make. It'll wear you down till your heart just breaks, but that's a good thing. It'll wake you up in the middle of the night. It'll take just a little bit too much. It'll burn you like a cinder till you're tender to the touch. It'll chase you down, swallow you whole. It'll make your blood run hot and cold. Like a thief in the night, it'll steal your soul. But that's a good thing. It'll follow you down to the great divide, open the wounds that you try to hide, and there in the rubble of a heart that has died, you'll find a good thing.
that love is a good thing. And then he says these words, he's just cracked me up, so take cover, <laughs> for the end is near. Take cover, but do not fear. For it'll break your will, it'll change your mind, it'll loose all the chains of the ties that bind, and if you're lucky, you'll never make it out alive. And that's a good thing. It can hurt like the blast from a hand grenade when all that used to matter is blown away. But there in the middle of the mess that it made, you'll find a good thing. Yes, it's worth every penny of the price that you pay. It's a good thing. So take cover, but do not fear. I'd like to invite Beth to come forward as we transition now into a time of communion, which I can't think of a better way to wrap up this whole series, just even with that action that we engage with in the communion table, which is more than just a symbol, more than just a ritual that we do. It is engaging once again into the power of who Jesus is when he poured it all out. This is the, the ultimate act of doing that. And so, I, you know, I'm not one of these guys that has these great applications or anything like that. Again, I didn't like my sermon classes. Um, but I think it's appropriate to just sit back with the elements this morning and interact with God in some way about where we are on this journey of saying yes to the costliness of what it is that's required if we're going to be the kind of people who pour it all out.